This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Neil Mercer, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So Neil is here to talk to us about this uh, new book called Baron Joey Road, and which he co-authored with Ruby Jones. So Ruby's not with us today, just Neil's going to uh, give us all the details that we need to know. Uh, he's a Walkley award-winning journalist and has been a broadcast and print journalist for more than 40 years. He is reported in the Canberra Bureau of the Sydney Morning Herald and for News Corp in New York. In 1988, he joined the ABC's Four Corners, where he won a Walkley for his profile of convicted killer James Finch. He has worked on Seven Network Current Affairs Program Witness and Nine's 60 Minutes. Wow, that's a body of work. You're nearly as old as I am. No, you're you're a spring chicken, as they used to say. I'm not sure if that's politically correct anymore. No, I don't right. know. We're not politically correct on this um, podcast. Good. I'm pleased to hear it. I have um, been known to rant, and I am going to rant a little bit about uh, the murder of women in this country. Yes. Um, it seems pretty timely at the moment that young women's voices aren't heard. No, I think that's one of the interesting things that occurred to Ruby Jones, my co-author, and myself as we were writing Baron Joey Road. I think the emotion that we felt most overwhelmingly was probably anger at what had happened to these young women way back in the 70s. You know, how much has actually changed in the last 50 years? Because what we're about to talk about, Cheryl, um, you know, is the disappearance of Trudy Adams in 1978. But some of the matters that then emerged take us back to March of 1971, 50 Mm. years ago this week. And, um, you know, it involves not just Trudy's disappearance, uh, nothing, her body's never been found. It involves what happened after she disappeared. When a lot of young women on Sydney's northern beaches came forward and said they'd been sexually assaulted, abducted by two men, abducted at gunpoint, taken into Kawingai Chase National Park and, and raped there, and they had not previously come forward to the police Uh, for a whole range of reasons, but they came forward after Trudy Adams disappeared because they thought maybe the person who had taken Trudy might be the same people that had attacked them. But 50 years ago, uh, I'm not sure a lot's changed. Women are still reluctant to come forward. Um, Well, look what's happening in Parliament House as we speak. I know, I know. That is um, one sad and very difficult story. do you know, Neil, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, Baron Joey Road for me was that. It was, um, and I'm angry, I'm some furious because I sat down and read it last night and I've just woken up absolutely furious that not much has changed. And it, to me it's as much a story about Trudy and the Northern Beaches as it is 
a voice for young women in this country. You know, when I look at what happened in King's Cross, two innocent young men were king hit. Terrible, mm. a terrible crime. But we, And they shut down the cross. Maybe they probably should have. But women, how many women, young women before them died and nobody even knows their name? Oh, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that struck Ruby and myself as we worked our way through this, and this has been three years in the making, was that Trudy Adams hadn't been forgotten, not so much, but what had happened around her disappearance, the rapes of officially at least 14 women. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them were children. Some were 14 years old, 15 years old. They were still in school. The rapes of at least 14 women, unofficially, we think it's closer to 30, and so do a number of the police who have looked at this matter. Really, you look back at it and they were just forgotten. Mm. Trudy Adams, I mean, there was a huge amount of publicity and there was some publicity about the rapes, but in, in one sense, the investigation into Trudy's murder, when that ceased, the rapes of the women, it seemed to just go into the police too hard basket. And really nobody heard anything more about it. And, Neil, you'll know this as well as I do. I've recorded over 400 podcasts in the last few years talking to authors like yourself. And when we're looking at crime and we're talking about crime books, I mean, I don't think I've had a book. I've spoken to an author who's written a book on a murdered male. It's really largely been murdered young women, girls and women. Well, I think that's true. I mean, the only book I've written previously was about Ivan Milat and he killed um, people of both sexes, hitchhikers, obviously. But, yeah, that's a sad, it's a sad fact. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. What you just said, I think. Tell us the story of Baron Joey Road. The story of Baron Joey Road basically begins, in one sense, with the disappearance of a young girl by the name of Trudy Adams, she was lived in Avalon on Sydney's northern beaches. It's a beautiful part of the world, fantastic beaches, good surf. You know, it's just really a glorious place to live. And she, on a Saturday night in late June 1978, she went to a dance at the Newport Surf Club along with lots of other young people, her friends, and she was there with her boyfriend, but she was sort of breaking up with her boyfriend at the time, you know, their, their best times had passed, but he was there. Um, Steve Norris was his name. The world was at her feet. In in a few days' time after the dance, she was due to go to Bali with some girlfriends. Um, she'd had the, the injections you used to have in those days. Uh, Which we'll because, be going back to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably. Well, injections are back. Yeah. Um, and her arm was hurting, so she didn't stay at the dance. And some people thought they saw her have a fight with her boyfriend, Steve, Steve Norris. But anyway, she left. She walked across the car park to Baron Joey Road and hitches a lift. And really quickly, and this is an aspect of the book that we found, very quickly a car pulls up and she gets in. She's seen by Steve Norris, who's followed her out of the, out of the dance because he was a little concerned for her. Um, she's seen getting into a panel van. The panel van drives off and no trace of Trudy Adams has ever been found. Not her body, not any clothing, not any jewellery, and really just nothing. She just disappeared, 18 years old, from a good middle-class 
background. Her dad was a Qantas engineer. Her mum was an activist, an early environmental activist. And in the days that followed, Cheryl, what happened is that the Homicide Squad came in. They had little doubt it was a murder. But then they discovered all these young women coming forward, turning up at the police station, sometimes in the case of one 16-year-old girl by herself. And she was a little reluctant at first, but she told the police she had been abducted at gunpoint by two men. She'd been hitchhiking too. Jumped into the car, said where she was going, and the passenger had turned around and pointed a revolver at her head. They then handcuffed her, um, taped her eyes and taken her to Bushland where she'd been where she'd been sexually assaulted. She goes to the police station in the days after Trudy's disappearance and she tells the police this story and she also tells them something else. She says, I'm not the only one. And the police say to her, "Um, can you help us? Can you get those other young girls to come forward? And she does, which is pretty remarkable. And she hasn't even told her mum. Some of them didn't even tell their mums because they thought they would get the blame they thought it would be my fault. Sort of quote well, that's unquote. still happening now. And it's still happening now. Um, you look back and you go, how much has changed? That's what a lot of them thought. They also didn't trust the police a lot back in those days. I wanted but, to ask you, Neil, about the culture of the police back then. Talk to me about that, what you discovered. The New South Wales police back in the 70s or going back before the 70s, but For quite some decades, I don't think it's any secret that there was widespread corruption in the New South Wales police. But there was also other things like a lot of drinking, a lot of laziness, a lot of incompetence. Don't get me wrong, there were a lot of also really good detectives, but the culture of the time was not, to say the least, encouraging for women to come forward. Uh, What we found going back through this, this case that starts with Trudy's disappearance in 1978, was that after the police started investigating her disappearance, young women started turning up saying, telling almost identical stories. Two men, they were hitchhiking, two men had picked them up, guns pointed at their head um, and they'd been abducted and taken into the bush and let go. But, um, and in some cases, rather bizarrely, one of the attackers had given them 10 or $20 in cash, but they'd been they'd been let go. Some of them had gone to the police. To their credit, the police did take their statements. They tried to investigate up to a point, but what they also found was there were identical attacks going back to 1971. The first attack was March the first, 1971, 50 years ago, and the there were two other attacks. I think on March 6, 1971. The very first victim actually went to Manly Police Station on the Northern Beaches in the early hours of the morning. She was crying. Um, She was clearly distressed, but the police just did not believe her. And on the incident report, which Ruby Jones and myself discovered, her complaint was written down as doubtful. And Cheryl, it was called doubtful because she did not resist the two men even though she was abducted at gunpoint. She did not call out for help. She did not scream. And a policewoman who inspected her um, body said there were no marks, 
there appeared to be no resistance and her complaint under the circumstances must be considered very doubtful. And they sent her away. Mm. And I don't think they ever spoke to her again. So in those days, I think the culture of the police force was young girls were asking for it in some cases. You know, Um, when we talk about motive, right, do police ever look at the motive of why somebody would make a story up like that? I... (laughs) You've, you've stumped me there. Yeah. Um, I, you're quite right. Why would I, I think in this case it was an 18-year-old girl who walked into Manly Police Station. She tells this detailed story. Yeah. She's got no reason to lie. She lives Why? locally. She lives just around the corner from the Manly Police Station. Um, absolutely no reason to lie, but they send her away. I, you know what I think? I think it was the early hours of the morning at Manly Police Station. It transpired in later court proceedings that there was an awful lot of drinking at Manly in those days, that the night shift sergeant would send a junior officer around to one of the pubs before closing time. They'd load up the back of one of the paddy wagons with beer and it would go to the night shift. It's hard not to sort of look at that instance of the young woman going to the cop shop, being rejected, being sent home, and not think that really it was laziness, incompetence, Maybe they were drinking. And also who cares? She's well, an 18-year-old white female. I think a lot of the time in those days it went into the too hard basket. Mm. It's, a, it's a difficult crime, obviously, to investigate. Sometimes, not all the time, but a lot of the time it is. And I think particularly in those days it was regarded as, oh, it's a bit problematic and, you know, she was hitchhiking, she's stupid, why was she doing that? She's asking for it. And that's that's what a lot of young women felt back then. And that's why a lot of them, even when Trudy, when Trudy disappeared, they came forward and said, look, we didn't come to the police because we didn't think you'd believe us. Well, uh, and, and there's a history. Uh, and there's a history there that says they're exactly right. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And also they were concerned about how they would be treated, mm-hmm. not just by the police, but later on. And they were scared of these two guys. These were two blokes who were abducting young girls, sometimes children, at gunpoint. Uh, They had handcuffs, they had guns, they told stories that they were actually detectives looking for clues about a drug bust. They weren't, but nevertheless, that struck the fear of God into a lot of people. 
that they actually thought they were police. Uh, so, you know, these young women coming forward, even then when they did do that because of Trudy Adams, hoping they could help, some of them were still reluctant to go to court. Not surprising, particularly in those days, the way they were treated in court. They were treated as though it was their fault. Mm. And their sexual history mm. was, you know, put out in the courtroom for everybody to to hear. Mm. I mean, why would you go for Why would you come forward? In, in, and then the person that has been accused of the crime, you can't bring up their history of crime in a courtroom, can you? Well, I'm not sure. It depends on the circumstances. Right. It depends what they admit to or what they say. If they say they're a, they're a fine, upstanding person in the community, I think you can, particularly if right. they've got a criminal history starting, uh, as it does in this case, at the age of about 10. And it was a pretty, it was a very, very bad criminal history. Guns, revolvers, machine guns, um, robbery, safe breaking. And interestingly, the person we're talking about, the chief suspect in the disappearance of Trudy Adams and also in the the rapes, the 14 rapes that police officially said occurred. The chief suspect had a record of sexual assault against a male just a few years earlier, I think in 1975. And in that case, he'd abducted the young male. They'd forced him to strip naked. This is in almost the same, exactly the same spot as the women later testified. They were assaulted. They fired bullets from a machine gun around his feet, told him to dig his own grave. It was a bizarre, strange, terrifying attack. But in this case, it was on a young man and they forced forced him, the main attacker, the main suspect, forced him to commit sexual acts on another male. Mm. So we're talking, we're, we're talking awful, awful stuff for this guy. Remarkably, he got six months for that assault on the young man because the young man was so scared of him. Uh, why wouldn't you be? Here's a, here's a guy carrying a machine gun, firing bullets around your feet. Uh, and it was all over some alleged very, very minor drug deal gone wrong. But that was what he was capable of. He was capable of terrifying people and capable of very, very bad violence. I, I don't know if this is true, but I get the impression that let's say that you were getting away with it every single time virtually, like they were, that you would get more and more confident. I think they did. I think they did. Yeah. Um, it, it starts in 1971. There are three attacks in 1971. They get away with that except this, Cheryl, the, the second attacks, there were two girls picked up in this case by the two men. One of the women had a relative in the New South Wales Police Force. In that instance, bear in mind this is like five days after the very first attack on March 1, 1971, when these women were taken to the police station, they took it a lot more seriously. The chief suspect, whether he heard something, whether there was a leak from the police department, all of a sudden... He's been in Sydney for quite a long time. He flees to Adelaide within days. He mm. flees to Adelaide. So he's out of New South Wales and the attacks stop. It's not till he comes back to New South Wales some years later that the attacks happen up again. He was terrifying and he was carrying a gun. He was with an accomplice. Both men, the two prime suspects, 
were both hardened criminals, had both been in children's courts and graduated, if you can call it that, through the more, the more senior courts and, and much more serious offences. But what they used to do was they, after the assaults in the bush in Karingai Chase National Park, they would rifle through the purses or belongings of, of the young women, take their address, take their name. Sometimes they would even take their address books and threaten not just the women they had just raped but also their friends. In one instance, they took an address book and it turned up about a week later in this young woman's mailbox. Just the attacker had taken it with all the names and addresses in it and sent it back to her. Awful. Talk to me about how you come to tell these stories. So why this story, Neil? This story arose out of an ABC television series, um, three one-hour documentaries on Trudy Adams and also a podcast in 2018. Uh, And that had arisen in itself out of a production company, an outside production company going to the ABC and saying, we think this is an unresolved story. There are a lot of a lot of question marks about what happened, not just to Trudy Adams, but all these rapes. It appears not much ever happened. It appears these women have been denied justice. We think it should be investigated further. So myself and Ruby Adams got involved in the television and the podcast, and subsequent to that, in late 2018, early 2019, the book came about because there were a number of publishers who were interested in pursuing the story in more detail. Now, I have, I mean, I'm, I'm a great podcast listener. I, I tend not to listen to so much crime, but I'm listening to two or three a day. What do you think the value is? I've read various articles saying that police are finding them annoying, you know, that perhaps that people are looking into a crime with a journalist's eye or a writer's eye rather than a police eye. So I've heard a, a bit of that going on. But what do you think the value is of telling these stories? I think the value is is maybe twofold. One is it's never too late to try and maybe shake loose some detail that somebody's kept to themselves for 40 years. There are people who know things, who keep secrets for decades, and you never know. I mean, it's sure, that's, that's a long shot, but there's always a chance that somebody out there knows something and they might come forward if their memory is jogged by some detail, you never know your luck. As I say, that is a long shot. But I think also this is part of our history. This is 50 years ago, the first attacks, and we're talking about sexual assault in Parliament House. We're talking about rape. We're talking about sexual harassment of young women, young women being very reluctant to come forward, reluctant to go to the police. They're worried about their jobs, they're worried about how it will play out in their lives. And I think it gives us some perspective that, as we perhaps said earlier, I think it gives us some perspective that we're looking back 50 years and we're talking about very, very similar things about how young women react, how they perceive their case will be investigated. And in a lot of cases, they simply don't wish to go to the police. Mm-hmm. And so talk to me about you and um, Ruby co-writing. How was that experience? It was interesting. It was long. <laughs> um, and, it's different, right? And it's different. Journalism. It's yeah. different. It's different. It's um, 
it's always a great idea at the time because you think this is going to be really good. Um, we might actually find out something new. And then, you, of course, you have to sit down and write it. And it was not just complicated by the fact there are two of us, Ruby, Jones and myself, it was complicated slightly by the fact that at one stage or as after we started writing, we ended up in two different cities. So a lot of the documents had to stay with, with me, but Ruby and I then liaised and did chapters. We talked it through and Ruby wrote a number of chapters and I wrote a number of chapters and then we would swap them, we'd talk through them, but it's not as easy as daily journalism. No. But I hope it is rewarding. I think it is rewarding and, yeah, but it's an experience that it's taken us, we started in early, well, a lot of the information was gathered during the television and podcast, but a lot of that information, a lot of the detail, you just can't use for things like TV, whereas for a book you can sit down and go, okay, well, here's the story, here's the narrative, and you can go into a lot more detail. So I think that's that's a very rewarding thing, and you hope that it might have some impact and you hope that maybe somebody might even come forward and say, I've never told anybody this, but I think I know where Trudy Adams' body might be. Has um, anybody come forward at all? A couple of people have contacted us, Cheryl, but not with any information that you'd regard as useful, not at this stage. There, there are all sorts of people out there. Some are well-meaning, absolutely. Others are, well, we, we, we're having a lot of debate at the moment about anti-vaxxers and that sort of thing. There's a lot of people out there who have theories that really don't stack up. Um, so if, if, I, if, I, if, if I can put it politely, yeah. as I say, without going into the detail, Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, have people contacted you, not about Trudy, but about their own stories? Do people come out of the woodwork and say, well, if you've told her story, maybe you can tell my story? Yes. I mean, that did happen after the TV and podcast in 2018. We received dozens and dozens or hundreds of emails from members of the public. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were from women who spoke to Ruby and said they too had been attacked back in the 70s. In one or two cases, they'd never spoken to anybody at all except Ruby and they burst into tears over the phone. Other women came forward and said, yes, you can use my name, and they told in some detail about being chased you know, along Baron Joey Road or nearby by groups of men in cars, how they'd gone to the police and the police had done absolutely nothing. And this was actually after Trudy Adams disappeared. And their point being that if the police weren't going to follow up those sort of leads after all the publicity about Trudy's disappearance, when were they? Well, the answer was, was never. But a lot of people came forward, not so much to get us to tell their stories in great detail, but I think to try to help, to say, look, this, this might be helpful. I don't know. It might be a clue. A number of people came forward with details, some of which we passed on to the New South Wales Police. There are some quirky things that happened. Um, somebody got in touch and said, oh, you should look in one of the tunnels that's dug under one of the roads on the northern beaches. And as it turned out, so the story goes, during World War II, a lot of tunnels were dug under some of the roads on the northern beaches because of a feared Japanese invasion, the idea being that they, if it did happen, 
and they did land around that area, they would put explosives in the tunnels and as the Japanese neared, they would blow them up, slowing their progress towards Sydney. This particular person said, there's a tunnel that I know of that I discovered some years ago and there's clothing and a bed in there and would you like to see it? And Ruby and I said, yes, we would. And this man took us to the tunnel, which was indeed under the road, cut through the rock. It was, um, you got in there on your hands and knees. It was very damp. And as we discovered, and bear in mind, this was before COVID, Cheryl, what we discovered was there was a colony of bats in the cave, microbats, tiny little critters. Anyway, it was a sort of tunnel that went straight in and then had a sort of a left turn and right at the back there was this old um, steel bed frame with just the the springs. There was plastic sheeting, there was a comb, grooming kit, and there was a pair of pink Calvin Klein jeans, which you would think probably at one stage belonged to a woman. There were other things in there, but we told the police about that. We're not quite sure whatever happened, whether it was any interest. Look, it could have been um, a homeless person, I guess, but the pink Calvin Klein jeans struck us as being slightly odd and we, we did not touch things or remove things because we thought, look, we don't know what we've got here. Best tell the police. We never heard anything more about whether they went and looked at it or not. Don't know. But that's the sort of thing people sometimes come to you with. Uh, it adds to the intrigue. There was. Do you think that that the pink jeans were of, like, are they modern, or did you think that they were fifty years old? Well, Calvin Klein started, I think, making jeans. I think around seventy nine. So they're certainly, I don't think, related to Trudy Adams right. or the seventies. But it did strike us as odd that um, there'd be somebody living there. It's a long, long way from anywhere. It's mm. quite remote, and you would never find it. What was the guy that contacted you doing there? Oh, he, 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 he was a local who was walking through the bush right. and just noticed it one day and um, got down on his hands and knees and sort of got about halfway in, I think, and then was put off by something he might have seen or it might have been the microbats, I'm not sure. But he just thought it was worthy, worthy of investigation. He said, well, you know, who, do, who was there? We don't know. Yeah. What do you think police now are thinking about these stories? Are they it, interested in, in having a look at cold cases or not? They are, but it's, it is incredibly difficult. And I think in this case, the case of Baron Joey Road, it's clear that some detectives tried really, really hard, but it came too late. One of the women who came forward in 1978 tried to assist police. In fact, she made a statement. She went to a court in Sydney where the chief suspect was appearing on other matters, nothing to do with Trudy Adams, nothing to do with the rapes. Um, The police took her there to see if she could identify, further identify her attacker. She pointed out a man and, as she said, I never heard another thing from the New South Wales police. She was never, ever contacted for 26 years. And the police are interested in cold cases, but they need evidence. And I think in this matter, some of the women felt that they'd been let down by the police back in the 70s. 
They'd they'd been through a number of reinvestigations where different suspects were put up at one stage um, and then subsequently discounted and they went back to the two original suspects. But I think a number of the women, and this is secondhand, but we feel, we were told that a number of the women just didn't want to take it any further. They'd moved on in their lives. They thought that they might have been police officers that had attacked them even though that was discounted. So they, they spoke to the, re, the officers who were reinvestigating, but it's, it is a difficult task. I don't think we should make any bones about that. Um, it is a difficult task. I think they're keen, but there's only so many cases you can do. And, you know, resources, I guess. That's uh, right. Neil, we're out of time. Incredibly interesting story. I mean, and we need people like you to keep telling them. Because they are relevant and it is part of our history. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Cheryl. Really appreciate it. Thanks. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.